broadcasting from WIUX LP Bloomington, you're listening to this week's episode of American Student Radio. I'm your host for this week, Casey Ross. We're exploring the human body today with stories about our body's inner systems to our bodies betraying us. The human body is something that binds us together. We all have one, no matter how unique they can be. And all those bodies all work together in a variety of different manners. Bodies can run, they can jump, and they can move in all sorts of ways. For example, my body is really good at running short distances and swinging a racket in a tennis match, but it's not so good at fighting against my seasonal allergies. No two bodies are alike, and that's what we'll be diving into today. From blue, from uh, again live, live. What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is. This is. This is American Student Radio. Real chill real chill aliens conspiracy journalism and lesbians our first piece this week comes from first-time producer Jonam patel Jonam's involvement in the kelly institute of social impact aka kisi has allowed her to meet some pretty incredible people today she'll be joined by megan yoder whose college experience was interrupted by discovering she had a brain tumor As college students, we worry about taking exams, getting a job, balancing our crazy workload while saving time so we can go party on the weekends. The cycle goes on repeat. Most of your college life gets by so fast with this busy schedule. However, what if you were told in the middle of all of this that you have been diagnosed with brain tumor? Megan Yoder, a junior at the Kelly School of Business, was told just that. Last semester, I was in the middle of taking classes Um, 17 grad hours, and I realized that the left side of my body started having pins and needle, uh, tingling sensation, like my foot was asleep all the time, or my hand was asleep. And this tingling eventually got painful. And after a few trips to the doctor and an MRI, I was diagnosed with two glioblastoma brain tumors. You were told that you have not one, but two brain tumors. What was your reaction to that? Well, To be completely honest, I wasn't shocked when I got the diagnosis. Um, I'm a survivor of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which typically childhood survivors are later diagnosed with brain tumors. It's a definite, it's a, not an uncommon um, reaction to the chemotherapy that we received. So the day before I was diagnosed that I got that call, I actually had called it. I told my boyfriend, I think it's a brain tumor, to which he responded, don't be negative or pessimistic, and turned out to be right. So I wasn't surprised, um, mostly resigned to going through it again. Megan was then admitted to the hospital where they ran multiple tests, and the doctor at IU Health concluded that the tumor was inoperable and that Megan should just stick to chemotherapy. The option of not having surgery being told that I was inoperable is essentially a death sentence, which is not uncommon with glioblastoma patients. Most neurosurgeons view these as basically a waste of time. You're better off just using the remainder of your days to be with family, to be as happy as possible. But most are not willing to risk liability, and they just don't believe you can be cured. She then came out of the surgery having left neglect which meant her brain couldn't recognize the left side of her body. I could see out of my left eye, but my brain didn't process what it was seeing. So it was essentially that I was blind in it. I could be talking to you, 
you could be on my left side, I would stare straight ahead and answer you because I didn't know to turn my head. Despite being told by the surgeon that her left arm would be permanently paralyzed, she went through physical and occupational therapy to try to reestablish connection with her left arm. My brother actually graduated from college with a degree in cognitive science, and so his studies were all about neuroplasticity, about the capabilities of the brain, so not just anatomical, but also just the vast inner workings, and how it's such a more complex system than we understand. So that's where he told me that even if I did lose my arm, as I was told that was a possibility, that I could reestablish connection and that it wasn't just over and done with. So that little bit of hope made me, after I got out of surgery, try to try to make contact again. And I've been working on it ever since. Um, mobility has come back. I have reestablished all connections with all the different major muscle groups in my arm. I am just now working on fine motor skills with my fingers. What do the doctors have to say about that? My neurosurgeon, who never smiles, now smiles at me and will give me a hug. So I think I've made his day. Since I have found out a lot about this experience through your social media posts, I'm really curious to know why document this experience on social media and let it out there for everyone to see. Yeah, so when I was first diagnosed with glioblastoma, I made the mistake of researching it in my hospital bed, which it's not, there's no hope on the internet. There's no one that tells you you're going to be okay. And that's something that's really hard. And I was in a really dark place until I got the call from the Duke surgeon that he would take me. So I think it's important for people, especially those with glioblastomas and different astrosarcomas, to know that there is hope that your body, your ability to survive is so much more than just what current medicine can tell you. It's a lot to do with your mental attitude um, a lot to do with your willpower. And you can say these things, and oh, it just sounds, you know, like motivational speech. Um, there are actually studies and research that have shown that the placebo effect, so believing that you're going to survive, actually has a positive reaction in your brain. It releases certain chemicals that help your body heal. Um, whereas believing you're going to die and not having faith in yourself produces a nocebo effect, which is the opposite, it produces negative chemicals. So it does, your mental attitude does matter. Your support system does matter. It's so much more than just your body, than just what modern medicine can do. It's all about you and how you're willing to face the challenge ahead. Although there has been a lot of progress in her health, there are a lot of challenges. I think my biggest issue is that I'm very impatient. <laughs> so I'm used to being able to type really quickly. I'm used to be able to just open and grab things and now I'm having to work a lot harder at it. And even though I am recovering a lot faster than most people would, to me, it's still not good enough. And I'm always trying to get better. So, but in times like those, I do logically remind myself that it's only been not even six months since my surgery. And then following my surgery, I had radiation, which was more damage to my brain. And so it's been since January, really, that I've been radiation-free and been re recovering from that injury as well. And so I think just positivity for me is an ongoing aspect where I just simply keep living my life because I think the moment that I stop doing what I normally do is when the moment that, my, that I will have allowed the cancer to win. 
Megan is currently back at IU where she's involved in Net Impact, a student organization in Kelly that promotes sustainability, and will catch up with classes this summer. She will continue occupational therapy and is on daily chemotherapy pills. Her plan is to continue posting on social media about her progress so that she can be a resource to anyone else who is dealing with a similar situation. Thank you, Megan Yoder, for sharing your story. Have you ever wondered what a colon sounds like? Our next story from producer Carter Barrett is an an experimental piece about how our body's digestive system works. And be warned, the sounds in this piece aren't the most pleasant to hear. Imagine you've just walked in the door after a long day, sat down and opened up a bag of crispy potato chips. As you place them in your mouth, the digestive process begins. The enzymes in saliva wet the chips and start to break them down into small digestible pieces. Okay, now that those chips are chewed up, it's time to swallow, which is a coordinated thing. It takes 22 muscles. After the food is pushed down into the esophagus where nerves involuntarily push the food down into the stomach. But before food enters the stomach, it has to pass through an opening that acts like a valve. As it opens and closes, food drops into the stomach. A combination of enzymes and gastric acids break the food down so that the body can obtain its nutrients. Those nutrients then enter the bloodstream and spread throughout your entire body. After the stomach completes its job, the remaining food is pushed into the small intestine. The small intestine uses wave-like contraction to push partially digested food along. Any of the remaining nutrients are absorbed. As the nutrients are sucked away, the matter moves its way into the large intestine, which its primary function is to absorb water. Finally, the colon acts as the last catch-all for waste products, so anything the body can't digest comes here. And for this chip's journey, we all know what happens last. For American Student Radio, I'm Carter Barrett. For a full list of audio used in this piece today, check our link on Facebook. Our next story comes from me. My longtime friend and IU senior, Emily Wartlieb, sat down with me to talk about her grandpa's heart attack and dealing with tough situations through humor. So my grandpa's name is Mike. And he is a Jewish man from New York. Out of all of my grandparents, I would say yes, he was around the most. He lived with us for a while in the last couple of years. He had like a lot of heart attacks throughout life my mom was like he had nine lives he had a heart attack in like the 90s he had one a couple years later and then last november he went into cardiac arrest in a walmart 
he drove to Walmart and he went into the aisle and then all of a sudden he just goes into cardiac arrest, like drops on the ground. And then a, I guess a stranger, we never found out who it was, came up to him, performed CPR on him. He was literally dead on the floor for like 20 minutes. And then the ambulance had to come. They took him to the hospital and they called my parents and my parents met him there. And then he was out for a while. And then he woke up and my mom told him that he had a heart attack in a Walmart. And he's like, I went to Walmart? And they were like, yeah. And he thought it was 19, like the early 90s, whenever George Bush won was president, because that's who he thought was the president. Because when you come to, they like ask you questions. So they asked him things like, what's your name? And he knew that and like who his children were. And he could identify my dad and my aunts. But then it got to like historical things like what year is it? Or like what is a cell phone? And he really did not know the answers. And he really had no idea that he went to Walmart. My mom did not tell me about it. I called her the next day because I got a job. So I called her to tell her about the job. And she was like, oh, that's great. By the way, uh, your grandpa had a heart attack in a Walmart. Tell me about your like immediate reaction like when you got when you heard that news. I was, okay, I laughed because the story itself is hilarious. I was like, wait, what? I really wanted to understand the, I really thought it was funny that he had no idea what year it was, which is messed up reaction, but he was fine. Like he literally should have been dead, but he wasn't dead. So my first reaction was that this is hilarious and something that would only happen to our family. He lit, was in the hospital for like a really, really long time. And then he moved into a like assisted living type place where he did physical therapy because he really couldn't move around very well afterwards. And so he lived in this assisted facility for a while. And then he eventually moved back into our house. He, I would say that he lived in like hospitals or assisted care for close to like six months or so because he, was, he wanted to move out of our house and go back to Missouri the day before he had his heart attack. He was my favorite grandparent. He would take me to the jewelry store, like this little weird jewelry store near my house every year on my birthday from when I was 10 and like get me like a bracelet. It was like, he was like, you're the oldest granddaughter, so you need to like be special. And I was like, thank you. And he was just like really funny and really like nice. He was a good grandparent. Only us, only us would we have to get the call that a man is lying dead in a Walmart and then he comes back to life. The music from that piece was from Poddington Bear. We spend a lot of time taking care of our bodies on the inside, but we also spend a lot of time taking care of our bodies on the outside, our appearances. It can sometimes take a lot to be comfortable in your own skin. 
But that's exactly what Hannah Martin is trying to do. Our final story comes from the ASR vault from producer Taylor Haggerty. Okay. okay, this is not working. We're going to walk over this part. <laughs> That's my roommate, Hannah. She's learning how to roller skate. She's still got a long way to go. You can hear her stomping on the sidewalk. I asked for roller skates for my birthday and Christmas every year as a child. As a child? Uh-huh. Why? <laughs> Just because I thought it would be really fun. A few months ago, skating around Bloomington would have been impossible for her. Hannah was diagnosed with anorexia last April, and she spent two months this summer in a treatment center recovering. Now she lives with me and our friend Sarah in our own little apartment. This is us now, but a year ago. So I wanted to start skipping meals and stuff, not to lose weight really, but to punish myself, I guess. Hannah gave herself a limit on the number of calories she could eat in a day. At first, the limit was 1,200, then it was 1,000, then 500. Near the end, she was eating under 300 calories a day. Sarah didn't notice because she didn't know what to look for. I didn't notice because I spent all of my time thinking about food, just like Hannah did. I was diagnosed with anorexia about a year before Hannah was. When you're starving, it's hard to focus on anything else. Talking to people, taking notes in class, and even sleeping will only get harder the hungrier you get. It was horrible. I would see other people eating, and I would just stare at their food. Like, I would try to figure out how many calories other people were eating, then, like, wish that I could eat the food, but know that I wasn't allowed to eat the food. Eating disorders rely heavily on rules. These rules are different for everyone, and they aren't logical. With my salads, I had to eat everything in a certain order, so it was, like, lettuce and then cucumbers and then broccoli and then peppers. I'm sure this sounds crazy to most of you, but take my word for it. Everyone listening who's had anorexia knows what I'm talking about. We all made our rules to limit calories and keep ourselves thin. And because Hannah and I were going through it at the same time and never talked about it, it turned into a sort of silent competition. First semester, there were a bunch of people hanging out in our room and you said that like you hadn't eaten lunch because you had an eating disorder. And then everybody was fawning over you and that made me really mad. Hannah wanted to be sicker than I was. She started doing more to lose weight, including exercise. I would go on nine-mile walks. After a while, I had to cut down on it because I just, like, physically couldn't do it. And eventually, I had to stop doing it altogether. Hannah couldn't even walk to class without having to stop and sit down to catch her breath. I had suspected her eating disorder for a while at this point, but until I interviewed her for this project, I had no idea just how bad she'd gotten. Her parents didn't either, although they knew something was wrong. I was eating a lot more at home to try to cover it up, but I still wasn't eating as much as I usually did. I wouldn't eat snacks or anything if they offered them to me. My dad was like, Hannah, you have to start eating. Even after she knew she was sick, she didn't want to get any better. I wanted to look really, really skinny and sick, and I guess I wanted my emotional pain to look more like a physical problem. For as long as I can remember, I've always felt like I was different and that I didn't fit in. Hannah says now that this feeling of isolation is probably because of depression. She thought she was different from everyone else and stopped eating to punish herself for it. She wouldn't accept help from anyone until one night in January when Sarah told her she was worried. I did say, like, I wanted her to get whatever help she needed. You know, I didn't know what she should do. I just wanted her to be okay, and I didn't exactly know what that meant. Hannah says Sarah was the reason she started going to therapy. I felt like if I didn't go, then she would go to our RA or, like, call my parents or something eventually. And, like, I wanted to be the one who had control over when I started treatment. Hannah met with a nutritionist, a psychologist, and a physician from January through April. I tried, 
and I did go over my calorie limit by a lot and I would like gradually raise my calorie limit but under the condition that I was still losing weight and there was one week where I had gone on like a 15 mile walk so I felt like I should have lost weight that week but I actually gained like a fraction of a pound or something at that point like I decided that I wasn't going to try anymore. It wasn't just the food either. Hannah was still having trouble fitting in with her classmates. I felt like I was inadequate even with my friends because I just felt like I wasn't fun to be around and I wasn't funny or fun to talk to or just like I wasn't a good friend. She went back to her old calorie counts, her blood pressure went down, and her liver started failing. They um, told me that they needed to like get my parents involved. They called her parents and found a treatment center. I didn't even really want to recover. I just wanted to get out. If she could trick everyone into believing that she was okay, Hannah thought she would be able to get out of the treatment center. But that wasn't what happened. The treatment center forced her to communicate and really get better. Everybody there had an eating disorder. It wasn't like this special thing. So we got to know what everybody's interests and values and stuff were outside of the eating disorder. And it was kind of nice to be reminded that that part of our identity existed too. Being in the treatment center was exactly what Hannah needed. About four weeks into her stay, she discovered something. It was this breakthrough where I was like, oh, I can recover. And everybody was like, Hannah, like you've changed so much. I didn't want to get better like until after I had already started getting better. While Hannah spent her summer in a treatment center, I spent it in another country. We didn't talk again until I moved into our apartment in August. But Sarah was much better about keeping in touch. We emailed every day. I think we skipped five days. I think she usually, I usually send it in the morning before I went to work. And then she read it when she got off treatment at like six and she emailed me back and I got it that night. And then the next morning I would write to her. Sarah was there for Hannah the whole summer for support. Hannah was in treatment for two months. And during that time, she learned to plan out her own meals, something that she still has to do today. Do they have orange passion fruit guava juice at Spia? Every meal is divided into ounces and grams until she has just the right amount of calories. For her, it's hard to imagine ever stopping. In my mind, it's either like I relapse or I gain all the weight. How do you see this affecting you down the road? Like 10, 20 years from now, how do you see this impacting your life? I mean, I would hope that that far down the line, I would have recovered fully. At the end of our interviews, Hannah and I talked about why we wanted to tell this story. I think it's important for people to realize that weight loss isn't always good and not feeding yourself is not admirable. I wanted to tell this story because so many other people have suffered through the same thing. And like I thought I was alone and I was special for it, but I wasn't. And it's just that no one talks about it because it's not seen as a serious issue. And I still don't think that my story is worth telling, but, like, yours is, so I'll tell yours. I mean, I I relate to, like, the not feeling like your story is good enough, like, because that's how I feel about mine. I also asked if she was happy now. Probably happier than since, like, I was a little kid. One day, after we all moved in together, Sarah brought home a flyer for the local roller derby team. And I was like, hey, I've always wanted to roller skate, and so I did. So it's different ah. from the it's different from the walks you used to take last oh, year. Oh yes, most definitely. I'm probably not burning very many calories right now. I don't know. You're working and pretty also, hard. And also, I'm not like thinking about the calories that I'm burning. So. So it's just for fun. Yeah. From Bloomington, I'm Taylor Haggerty. Yellow submarine. Yellow submarine.
submarine, yellow submarine, we all live in... Thank you for listening to American Student Radio on WIUX 99.1. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Make sure to tune in next week when producer Peeler Brynjarski hosts with his show about Bloomington. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students at Indiana University Bloomington. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at ASR Voice. We broadcast new episodes every Sunday at noon on WIOX and stream on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash American-student-radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.